In the podcast, Nice White Parents, reporter Hannah Jaffe Walt, you may know her from This American Life, started looking into this one school in her neighborhood after her kids became school age in New York City. Hannah examines this public middle school, traditionally filled with black and brown students, after a number of white families arrive. And then, not satisfied she fully understood what she was seeing, she went all the way back to the founding of the school in the 1960s, and then up to the present day again. Eventually, Hannah realized she could put a name to what was getting in the way of making the school better all these years. White parents, nice white parents, is a fascinating listen that's deeply relevant today. It's made by Serial Productions, a New York Times company, same people who made the hit podcast Serial and S-Town. Launching CTA, now through 819, it's available wherever you get your podcast, and new episodes are released every Thursday. Binge, CTA, 820 and beyond. All episodes are now available wherever you do get your podcast. Hello and welcome to 2020 Politics War Room with James Carville, still out in the Shenandoah where he's socially distancing. And I'm Al Hunt here in Washington. We're proud partners with the Sign Institute at American University in Washington, and we can't wait to get back there at some point. First, I want to thank everyone who has subscribed to the show on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. Every new listener is a pleasure to have on board, and what perfect timing for our show this week as we will react to Joe Biden's VP pick, which we will get to very, very shortly. But our first guest is considered one of the very, very best Democratic state chairs in America. Ben Wickler, who has continued to invigorate the party in Wisconsin, which is critically important this week with a virtual convention, at least a role in it, and also in November. Ben, thanks for joining us. We know this is not quite the mid-August you expected with a full-fledged Milwaukee convention. Other than disappointment, has that had any impact out there? And what are you looking forward to next week? You know, having a virtual convention means, on the one hand, you don't have thousands of people packed into tight spaces, having the kind of jubilation and also germ spread that comes with that. Um, On the other hand, what we have is a virtual convention where people across Wisconsin and across the country can have the same experience that the actual delegations get. And that means that we can actually include more people. Uh, we, we've been planning since last year to run a huge training during the convention to fire up and enlist thousands of volunteers to help us win in the fall. Now it's a virtual training, and I think we're going to have many more thousands of people go through that during the convention and plug right into the virtual phone banking and virtual text messaging operations that will power the Biden-Harris victory in the fall because it's a virtual convention. So to me, there's a huge silver lining. Well, I hope you have a claim on the 2024 convention also, even though it's four years away. I, um, yes, memo to the next DNC chair. I think that's a great idea. The Harris pick, how does it play in rural Wisconsin? You know, Kamala Harris is a senator from California. California has a lot of rural areas. Um, I think people often think of California and think of San Francisco and Los Angeles. Uh, the, the truth is there's a ton of farming there. And Kamala knows how to connect in, in every corner of California and in every corner of Wisconsin. I'm really excited about her. She came to Wisconsin in 2018 to help campaign for Tony Evers, our, our uh, soon after that elected governor, and Tammy Baldwin, who's running for re-election. And uh, folks loved her. She just really fired up crowds. Um, she's now going to be you know, back here representing the ticket. Um, 
in one way or another, uh, virtually or, or otherwise, as we go into the fall. And I think it sets us up really, really well for a powerhouse uh, ticket and a powerhouse November and a, uh, you know, the next however many years of, of great governing. Then uh, there's probably no state, or at least Wisconsin is one of the three or four states that's going to be most important, most watched uh, in November. Last year, you lost it by, uh, last time rather, by I think a little over 22,000 votes, an upset. Uh, the Marquette poll, which I've always respected, came out a couple of days ago, had Biden up 450-46. That's certainly good, but not yet a slam dunk in the Badger State. You know, there is nothing uh, that you could interpret as a slam dunk in the Badger State until all the votes have been counted. In 2016, uh, on Election Day, the Real Clear Politics uh, polling average for Hillary Clinton had her six and a half points up. Uh, we then watched Trump... Uh, just edge in to a victory by less than one percentage point. Three of the last five presidential elections here have had less than one percentage point margins. In the blue wave in 2018, uh, the, the final poll that came out had uh, Tony Evers up by five. He wound up winning by 1.1, while Democrats you know, soared to, to landslides in Michigan and Pennsylvania. Uh, the next year, we thought we were up by eight points. Both, both sides polling said that the more progressive candidate for state Supreme Court was up by eight points one week out, and we lost by about half a percentage point. So what that says to all of us in Wisconsin is that no matter what the polls say, we're going to run like we're two points behind and fight for every vote in every corner of the state, because it might come down to just about anything. So I, in the last state Supreme Court race, I went to bed and said, oh, they break this thing, and they had like five precincts in Milwaukee. And I got up in the morning, and I'm opening my computer, and I thought I saw a misprint. Is that <laughs> is that a one-off event, or was that, or was that that state Supreme Court race? Was that telling us something? What was the significance of that as we push forward? So our strategy at the state party, since I was elected chair in 2019, has always been to use the spring Supreme Court election this year as a dress rehearsal for the fall, and that meant we made much bigger bets and threw ourselves in much more than. Uh, historically, the, the party's done. Um, we not only helped raise a whole bunch of funding to support our candidate getting on the air early, we also had a bigger field operation this spring than we had in the fall of 2018. And what that meant for us was we could actually try the strategy that we thought might be used to defeat Trump in the spring. And because COVID hit three and a half weeks before the, the uh, Wisconsin Supreme Court race, we're the only state in the country to have had a statewide general election in this pandemic. And we, we made this giant gamble, which is we focused 100% on vote by mail rather than trying to do what we've always done in every election before, which is to try to get people to the polls. So we, we tr had nightly webinars. We trained all of our activists on how to do virtual organizing. We reached out millions of times to voters to walk them through the process of requesting an absentee ballot, which is not easy in Wisconsin. And the numbers started blowing our minds. Uh, ultimately, so the previous uh, record for absentee voting in Wisconsin was 250,000 votes in 2016 in the presidential year. This spring, it was more than a million votes cast absentee. It was 61% of every vote cast was cast by mail. And among votes cast by mail, we won a 10 percentage point larger margin than votes cast in person. So, you know, I, I can't guarantee we'll have a blowout like that in the fall, but this is the model for us. And I think this is why Trump is so terrified about vote by mail, because we have learned how to help people to do it in a way that the GOP so far has not. So I'm involved in American Bridge, aware of it. We're spending a lot of money in rural and small town Wisconsin. 
and doing a lot of research. And I just talked to Stan Greenberg. He did a bunch of focus groups in Wisconsin. All right. I, we're, we're going to run better in these rural areas than we did in 2016. I mean, I, I genuinely believe that. Am I, am I correct? Do you, do you anticipate some improvement or, or give me a general view when we talk about rural and small town Wisconsin? Yes. So I think this is the untold story of 2016. Half of the swing from Obama's blowout in 2012 to Trump's narrow victory in 2016 came from communities where a thousand or fewer votes were cast. It is small towns and rural areas that racked up huge margins for Trump and pushed him over the top. So this fall, you know, we're, we're fighting everywhere. We're going to try to run up the margins and really turn people out in cities across the state. Uh, we're going to work in suburbs where people are fleeing Trump, but we are also going to work and compete for every rural vote because Trump has completely failed rural Wisconsin. Um, you look at healthcare; it is really tough out there. Uh, you can see that in, in deaths of despair. You look at farming. Wisconsin lost 10% of its dairy farms last year before COVID hit, and it's still losing dairy farms at a rate of you know two, sometimes three a day. It is crushing communities that depend on agriculture, and the president just doesn't have any answers for them. His only answer is that you should get big or go out, and that doesn't work for folks that don't have, you know. And I talked to Greenberg, who conducted focus groups, and the big issue to them is health care. And people were saying they voted for Trump because they thought he was going to do something about health care. And the women in particular seem to have turned pretty, pretty hard against him. Is that kind of some of the same thing that you feel in the hearing on the ground? There's a mammoth, mammoth gender gap. That's absolutely right. And, you know, when back when we could knock on doors, there were um, some places where local candidates would tell us, you want to knock before five o'clock uh, so that you, you get to, if, if you know, mom is home with the, with the kids in the afternoon before dad gets home, that's when you want to have the conversation because it might go very differently if the husband answers the door at a lot of houses. Um, the healthcare is both itself incredibly powerful as an issue, and it's also become a kind of a microcosm of so much else. Trump did promise he was going to get great healthcare for everyone. He wasn't going to touch Medicaid, Social Security, or, or Medicare. Uh, he said all kinds of stuff. And people for whom Obamacare wasn't delivering, especially in Wisconsin, where Republicans have refused to expand Medicaid, uh, people wanted improvement in their healthcare situation. And Trump tried to steer the the bus off the cliff. Uh, it is it's pretty wrenching for someone who thinks the problem is that their deductibles are too high to watch a president who's trying to make things actively that much worse. And I think there's a huge opportunity now, especially with COVID, with so many people who have lost their employer sponsored health insurance. Uh, it's just we're just just gasping, waiting for a public option that can help uh, give people a cushion. Uh, if, if if private markets aren't delivering for them and support to to close the loopholes and close the you know the gaps that the Republicans punched into the ACA, um, so that we can get healthcare to everybody. So the the way up people look at Ron Johnson in Washington is, man, this guy's like he's nuts. <laughs> what do people what do people think of him back in Wisconsin? Is it is is his conspiracies. Uh, he might be a QAnon kind of guy. <laughs> the people in Wisconsin figured him out. You know, the fascinating thing about Ron Johnson is that until pretty recently, most Wisconsinites didn't actually have a strong opinion of him. He doesn't cut that big a profile here. Now, he the mask, so to speak, is off. Uh, for all the people who are against masks, they've kind of unmasked themselves politically as well. And his unfavorable numbers are, are rising up. 
Um, he's now 33% favorable, 35% unfavorable. And as you can hear, still about a third of the state doesn't have an opinion. Um, those numbers uh, represent, you know, his, his, his unfavorables are creeping up since June. They've been creeping up since last year. He used to have a strong net positive. He does not anymore. And I have to say, the closer you are, you know, the more you're reading the news or seeing what he says and does, the less you like the guy. Uh, I, I worked in D.C. before, and he had this reputation as, a, you know, just someone who was not couldn't cut the mustard in the Senate. Um, it's now clear that he actually just deliberately, you know, spreads it on the walls. And it is, uh, it's not, it's not okay. And I think he has some real trouble in 22. Now he has said he's not going to run again in 2022, which I interpret as meaning that he's probably going to run again in 2022. Uh, but he might run for governor. That's another thing he's mused with. I think we just need to make absolutely clear to folks across Wisconsin that this is not someone cut out for public office. Well, James, just to pick up on your point, I would I would urge all of our listeners to read a, a piece in a place called Just Security, a very reliable um, uh, uh, outlet on security matters. Ron Johnson is distributing, maybe unwittingly, maybe he's uh, you know just a uh, you know a, a useful idiot, but he's disseminating Russian disinformation. Uh, it really is, and I I never thought he was the brightest bulb in the closet, Ben. And uh, so maybe he doesn't know what he's doing, but he's doing a lot of harm right now. It's not just that, uh, you, you know, he's he's a, a negative force. This is actually, I mean, to distribute Russian disinformation in order to discredit Biden is beyond any acceptable norm in politics. Yeah, he spent the 4th of July in Moscow in, in 2018, and he's uh, been going after Biden all the way through, and he's uh, he's really out to lunch. And he's amazingly, you know, he raised some concerns about the um, uh, the thing that Trump was impeached for, the withholding of uh, funds for, for military support for Ukraine. And then he inquired and said, is this a quick pro quo? What is this? And he was told, like, shut up about it. And he became a huge advocate against impeachment, even though he had run directly into the issue that was, was causing impeachment. This guy is willing to carry water for, you know, for anyone who's not out for the public good. Well, your state is incredible. I am just in the middle of a marvelous biography by Larry Ty on Joseph McCarthy. Ah. And uh, there are, I mean, God, it's, if you haven't read it, Ben, you've got to read it. It is a it is fabulous book. Next to my bed. It was a oh. Father's Day gift. No, it was, I forget what it was a gift for. It was a gift just recently. So my mom gave it to me and I've been reading it. It's amazing. And Ron, and Ron Johnson is Joe McCarthy minus about 40 IQ points. But, um, uh, you know, your state is incredible because it produces the McCarthy's and then the Bill Proxmires. Uh, and uh, it produces a, a Ron Johnson as well as a David Obie and a Tammy Baldwin. I mean, it really is, an, and it has remained an incredibly uh, diverse, eclectic uh, state. And, and that's what is, seems to be at play this year. Which way does Wisconsin swing? That's Exactly right. It's like, what is the what is Wisconsin fundamentally about? It's the birthplace of the progressive movement that the Republican Party launched as a radical anti-slavery party in Wisconsin. We were the first state to ratify the 19th Amendment to grant women suffrage. Or, yeah, we, we've we've done so much good in Wisconsin. And yet there's this tradition, this kind of, uh, you know, nativist, just reactionary thread in our politics. And it, there's an internal struggle for which one is really the soul of our state. Well, tail gunner Joe started as a uh, as a New Deal Democrat. Just one more question, James. Uh, you asked, you mentioned the re the legislature earlier. Uh, the Republican legislature has tried to give the governor fits. They've taken powers away. What role can the legislature play, if any, 
uh, on election day or on any controversies that follow after the election? So, you know, our, our big concern in the legislature is to stop Republicans from getting a supermajority. Uh, if they get that, they're going to re-gerrymander the state. They're going to do a lot. Uh, the, you're asking if, if the election is contested, what can Republicans in the state legislature do to help Trump? Is that the question? Yeah. Yes. I, I will say that <laughs> I wake up every day working to make sure that that does not happen as a situation. <laughs> I, so I, I have to dig into my constitutional scholarship to get a sense of whether the state legislature has a role. I know that if it goes to the House in a contested race, then it's the majority, basically the majority of the delegation that cast the, the vote you know, one way or the other to seat the, the new president. And right now, Wisconsin has five Republicans, three Democrats. They're heavily gerrymandered seats. But if we can pick up any one of those five, then it's four and four, which would be a you know, significant improvement in that situation. So when I was researching the show, I wrote this down in my notes. And I think it is in 2018 in the Wisconsin House, the Democrats got 53 percent of the vote and 38 percent of the seats. Is that a misprint? That is not a misprint. That is the intentional result of one of the worst gerrymanders in the country, driven by the Wisconsin GOP. You know, Reince Priebus was the chair of the Wisconsin Republican Party at that time uh, before he went off to, to D.C. After 2010, we went from a blue trifecta in 2008 to a red trifecta in 2010. And the second they had the wheel, they did everything they could to grab and lock in power as permanently as they possibly could. They smashed uh, organized workers' power. They gerrymandered the maps. They put in some of the most restrictive voter ID laws in the country to suppress the vote. They changed voter registration rules. They changed campaign finance laws across the every every page of the book. They changed it to rig it for Republicans. And what's at stake in this election is whether we can undo that damage. If we can stop Republicans from getting a supermajority in the state legislature this year, then the governor will be able to veto their gerrymandered maps next year and we'll have a path to a real democracy in our state. But heaven knows, we do not have one right now. Wow. So I'll tell you just a little Wisconsin story. My, my dad was a boxer at LSU. And University of Wisconsin was like the, I don't know, the Notre Dame or the New York Yankees or the New England Patriots <laughs> of college boxing, all right? I mean, they were the real powerhouse. And they took a train for a boxing match in Madison. And he never stopped talking about how cold it was. <laughs> the guy from Louisiana. So man got off the train and oh my God. <laughs> well, I'll just insert a quick mini story. My wife grew up in Little Rock, Arkansas. And from the minute we met, we were college sweethearts. I, I was talking to her about Wisconsin. We finally moved here and the, about a month after the polar vortex hit and uh, it became where if you threw water, you know, a, a glass of water into the air, it would freeze before it hit the ground. So yeah, <laughs> she feels she feels her dad's pain. <laughs> it's a, quite a traumatic shock. What are, if you had to guess right now, just little Kentucky windage, where's the race, the, the presidential race in Wisconsin as we speak? What's your best guess? I think if the election were held today and it were free and fair, we would solidly win. I think we'd, we'd probably win by three or four points. I think the challenge is, first of all, it's not today. There's a lot of you know, twists and turns to come. Um, I do think the public has kind of seen through Trump at this point. Uh, the thing I'm more concerned about is that Trump is going to do everything he can to try to rig this election. He is sabotaging the Postal Service. He is uh, he's planning a massive voter suppression campaign in person now that the consent decree on the on the Republican Party is has been lifted. So 
are organizing, the work that our volunteers are doing, the work our amazing uh, staff, our, our organizing team is doing day in and day out, is building buffers and plans to sidestep the GOP's voter suppression machine. Because the key to this whole thing is whether what the public wants in this election actually turns into the result. Well, how about vote by mail? How, how much of a You talked about the enormous success that you experienced under incredible um, uh, adversarial conditions in April. But how about November? As you say, first of all, the post office is being starved. He's put in a donor and a political uh, crony as postmaster general. And and to the extent that there are there's in there, there's polling, there's in person polling. Can you get enough poll watchers? So we have phone banks going six nights a week to recruit poll workers so that we can keep as many precincts as possible open in November. This is a, a huge priority. And, you know, whether you're Republicans, they tend to be older people. They don't do. They? That was the whole problem in the spring is that we had uh, like in, in Milwaukee, so many poll workers dropped out that they went from 180 precincts down to five. And if that is repeated in the fall, it is a it's a crisis for democracy. Uh, we actually had a partisan primary yesterday, the primary for the fall election for state legislature and Congress. Milwaukee yesterday had 168 poll uh, precincts open, which is I think speaks to the the enormous progress we've made since this spring. Both folks, you know, all of us within the party and uh, just civic groups, pro-democracy organizations and municipal authorities have been working around the clock to try to make this election work. But when we look at the fall, um, the Marquette University Law School poll came out yesterday. It said that among those who say they'll vote by mail, 81% support Biden, 14% support Trump. Among those who say they'll vote on election day, 67% support Trump, 26% support Biden. So that is really stark, just a massive gulf. And, you know, that is, I'm sure, what's motivating what Trump is doing to the most revered government institution in America, the U.S. Postal Service. So we are building alternate plans and alternate pathways. One of the things that uh, I was calling voters this weekend to tell them about is that in Wisconsin, if you have an absentee ballot, you can hand deliver it. You can turn it into a polling place. And in cities around the state, they're setting up drop boxes, secure boxes where you can just, you know, drive up and plug your uh, your absentee ballot envelope right into the box, same way you do with a, a post box. That's the kind of thing that can get around what Trump is doing at a federal level to the Postal Service. So I have this project where on election night, I'm looking for one county in a state in a number that says, like in Georgia, if you hit 60 in Gwinnett, you're going to win, all right? What is the comparable county in Wisconsin, and what is the number I have to hit? Just give me one county and say, James, if we're getting, you know, 61 here, it's going to be pretty hard for us to lose. Or, 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 or James, when you say 38. Uh, yeah, 38 or something. Yeah, you know, maybe a rural county or something. If you just had to place your bet on one county's vote being determined of the statewide outcome, which would it be? So Wisconsin has a, an embarrassment of riches in this, in this regard. Um, but I will say if we are above 48% in Brown County. In Bra that's Green Bay? That's Green Bay. That's right. right. So that oh, is yeah, a okay. that, that would very, be hard. yeah, the, the Trump, the Trump can't, can't get it. Uh, I'd also say you could look at Sauk County. Sauk County is a good example of a, uh, you know, a county that has tracked, uh, you know, tracked presidential elections been incredibly important. Um, if we're winning Sauk County, if we're winning Richland County, spell S S A U K. Sauk, okay, so, okay, yeah. All right. Uh, 
And that's in south uh, southwest uh, Wisconsin. That's one of those driftless counties. Uh, and what do we need there? Uh, I think if if we're winning, if we're winning, we're winning. I think if we're, we're if we're about fifty percent, I think we're in strong. We're fifty to add for sixty in Brown and Taser to Barn. And you lost you lost South last time. Yeah. Uh, the last one I'd say is Richland County. Richland County has is a is a is a good prospect for you because it has backed the winning presidential candidate in every presidential election since 1980. So Richland County, it's another, it's right next to Sauk County. It's another driftless, uh, driftless region, Southwest Wisconsin. It is, it is, you know, small by population, but big by uh, predictive power. And again, if we're above 50% in Richland County, uh, then, then Trump is toast. I mean, those counties were big for Trump. So this is the whole, <laughs> this is the whole story, right? Um, Trump rolled up these huge margins from rural areas, but then, if you look at what's happened since, like in the Supreme Supreme Court race, those those both those counties went bright blue. Sauk County was sixty percent uh, for Jill Karofsky, and Richland County was fifty seven percent. So that swing, I think, tells the the whole story. Tammy Baldwin uh, is a, is another good example. Rolled up huge margins there. Um, if if we're able to do that in the fall, then we're going to win. And that those are areas that have the driftless region. The way that the uh, they were skipped by the by the glaciers, so they didn't have the kind of snowplow effect of making the whole thing flat. There's a lot of ridges and hills, and that geography makes it easier to have a small farm that continues, because it's just harder to aggregate a huge amount of land and you know run a single system to to farm it. That's one reason why there's still a lot of small and organic farms in that region, and people think because of that, because the you know agribusiness monopolies haven't rolled up everything, that's why there's more political diversity there, and so. What you see now is this this just repeated hammer blows on the rural economy and especially the agricultural economy that have made folks who hoped that things would get better under Trump really have second thoughts. And I think that's why that region has trended blue. If 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 Trump's going to win, he needs to somehow cleave that whole region back to the, to the Republican column. If we can hold, if we can build on the progress we've made over these last three years, uh, then then he can't win the state. And I think that's a great place to watch. Yeah. I tell you that life in rural America, people need to understand that these people are having a very, very difficult time. And, you know, the way that they grew up is not the way that their children are going to grow up at all. And it, 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 it's very sad. And I think too often the Democrats don't think about people in that situation. And I think, or, or even worse, we tend to give them the feeling that we don't much care about them or respect them. And this has cost us a lot of pain. And I, I think Biden will, will not act like that. But I think we got to take the charge out to these rural areas. And we can we can cut these margins significantly, particularly with, with women. I really believe that. I absolutely agree. I, you know, when I was running for a chair, I went to uh, rural counties all over the state. And there are Democrats who live in every one of these counties, just the same as there are Republicans. But a lot of people feel overlooked. And, uh, you know, I think... Everyone who is in public life, and I also think just anyone who's on social media should make sure to recognize the humanity of, of people in every community, across race, across geography, across sector of the economy. Um, a lot. I was talking to a, a state senator in Wisconsin who represents a, a very rural district uh, earlier this week, and she said, you know, when I think about a rural community, I think of uh, people who are fighting poverty in an under-resourced setting. And... They're, they've got to see themselves reflected in the work that our party does. And I think that that's a, a, just a vital piece of the work. 
Ben, we got to let you go, but let me just ask you, what are you going to be doing next week? I'm going to be doing a lot of Zoom. I'm going to be doing virtual. Uh, we have these virtual trainings that I, that I mentioned. Anyone can go to training.win and sign up there for free. They will teach you the basics and the advanced stuff in campaign organizing, digital organizing, communication. Um, so I'm really excited about that. We're going to have events for the Wisconsin delegation, including a big kind of welcome to Wisconsin virtual uh, breakfast. We're going to have pre-programming before the the evenings in the convention. Um, I'm sure I'll be talking to a lot of journalists, uh, hopefully uh, asking folks for money to support our work to organize in Wisconsin. And then I'll be watching the speeches in the same way that everyone else in the country will on a screen. Um, but I'm so excited about what we're going to see. The, the lineup of speakers is just outstanding. Ben Wickler, lots of luck next week. You are a great guest uh, and we'll stay in touch between now and November 3. And we're going to watch Richland, Salkin Brown. That sounds great. Thank you. Hey, it's Mary. I want to thank James and Al for letting me talk to one of my favorite people in the world, not about politics, but that's how Dan Matthews and I met. And what we're here to talk about is something far more important than politics, and that is the human bond, the eternal bond and relationship and confusion and awe-inspiring love between parents and their children, and in this case, a mother and a son. Dan Matthews' new book, I've read it twice, I love it. It's called Like Crazy, Life with My Mother and Her Invisible Friends. You know Dan Matthews from PETA and other political activism. We'll talk about that later because it particularly uh, connects to the COVID catastrophe and calamity we find ourselves in. But let's talk about your book and your beautiful woman. Can I just start with the dedication? Because it says it all, almost. To Eleanor, Mary Ellen, Ellen Marston, Perry Lawrence, and any other handle mom used in her 82 years. Beautiful woman, you look a lot like her, Dan. Why did she have so many names? Let's start there. Well, my mom was born during the Great Depression. Uh, she was born in Washington, D.C., actually just a, little, a few years before the Depression, to a pretty wild woman uh, who put no, entered no birth certificate on the, uh, no name on the birth certificate. So, uh, she ended up having a lot of names and a few different identities, always a really witty, loving person, but uh, she was schizophrenic and she was undiagnosed and untreated until I moved her in uh, in her early 80s. Um, but she did not fall victim to the disease. I, I think of her more as a weary survivor. She, she somehow bluffed her way through life uh, by uh, with her wits and with her intelligence. She didn't uh, succumb to violence or booze or drugs. She uh, had difficulty maintaining long-term relationships with people, but she had a deep, deep bond with animals, always. And as a young child, despite my mother's occasionally erratic behavior, I learned to have the same bond as she did with animals. Animals were such pure truth and honesty, and I, I learned that um, a deep respect and the a unique communication that animals have and their unique intelligence. Uh, and that was what inadvertently set me off on my life of, uh, of uh, devoting my life to animal rights. I've been with PETA now 35 years as of last month. 35 years. I cannot believe that. Right out of college. Yes. And I, I, there's another book that Dan has done for all you booksters out there who love reading, which is another thing your mother influenced you about, loving books. So important. Your other book, Committed, details a lot of your PETA 
activities. But let me, in the case of your mother, she just didn't survive schizophrenia, which none of her family knew. She lost two children early on. She was abandoned. She was abused. She was raped. She, by the time you moved her in, you're a pretty bon vivant globe traveler, a raconteur extraordinaire, highly successful. In her 80s, you buy a big old Victorian house in the no offense, but were it not for your beloved Jack, whom I always liked, but now I love your husband, Jack. <laughs> you took a broken down money pit of a house and turned it into a castle for your mother. What, how, what went into that decision of you in the prime of your life taking in your mother at the decline of hers? Well, you know, in this country, uh, we often discard seniors like cigarette butts. Uh, there are whole senior home industry. And I think I think there's a few issues behind that. One is that uh, a lot of people don't develop a friendly rapport with their parents. They just have a parental rapport. And it's, you know, people can't wait to get out of the house when they're out of high school. And I think that's a healthy, a healthy thing. I think people should be able to stand on their own two feet um, and not rely on their parents too much. Of course, uh, with the economy being what it is now, a lot, a lot more young people are living at home. But for me, uh, the fact that she was adult and I didn't know what was her, what her problem was, but there was something there. It actually caused me to leave the country when I was 17. And after high school, I saved up a thousand bucks and moved to Rome for a few years just to sort of get a, a sense of the way life could be without uh, what I didn't know at the time was, was, was schizophrenia in it, where everything was just kind of upside down. But then as time went on and I started thinking about how my mom was in my corner when I was gay my mom was in my corner when I was a punk rocker, when I would get beat up at school. She was not only my champion, but all of my friends who's, who didn't really fit in. She was the, My mom was the queen of misfits, people who were neglected by their own parents would often be cared for by my mother. This was especially true in the AIDS era when she was like Nurse Perry, always there to cheer people up and look people, uh, you know, keep people in good spirits as they died from many of my friends died of AIDS. And as time rolled on, I thought, you know, I really owe this woman. It may be inconvenient for me, and I might not have the money, and I certainly don't think I have the skill set or the um, the time, but I would never forgive myself if I wasn't there for her when she was in her declining years. And it was lucky because when she hit about 80, she stopped being able to uh, bluff it. She was no longer able to block out the noises, and she would imagine all these different people being dead or that I got fired for not getting a haircut from work or people peeping into our second floor curtains, you know, as if they would be tall enough. Um, you're, and let me, can I say you're writing about those incidents where she was hearing songs being, she had the TV on full blast because she could hear songs being sung in her head. Often she said by, in her own voice, and she said she had a terrible voice, but she also imagined and reported to you as she lit your whole house in candles when almost starting the house on fire, she stuck it in coffee beans. She told you that your father had died, your her best friend had died, your brother had a heart attack. She had not only imaginary friends, she had imaginary catastrophic events that were very real to her. That's what living with a schizophrenic is. Before, before we, you have to read the book, because we can barely scratch the surface, but one thing I learned, and I think you learned, and you report in the book, is the notion of exactly what schizophrenia is right? and how difficult it is to get help for that. 
Schizophrenia, a lot of people think it's split personality disorder, but it's not. That's something completely different. Schizophrenia is when you have an overabundance of dopamine in your system and it clogs your message center. What uh, the, A message going from one side of your brain to the other, it, it, it can confuse you and make you think that somebody said something they did not say. It makes you think that they thought something that they did not think. It makes you paranoid. Uh, and it, it can manifest in a lot of different ways. And a lot of people, such as in my mother, it manifests in hearing sounds, hearing voices. I would walk in and she would be having a phone conversation, sometimes even very lovely, uh, funny phone conversations, but we didn't have a phone. She couldn't hear on the phone. She So it was, uh, she, you know, she had a, a, a phone for texting, but she couldn't hear on it. And she would just be standing there holding a, a wooden spoon as if she was having a conversation. And I thought that was really sweet at first, because I thought, you know, what do seniors have left but these lovely memories? Maybe that's just the natural course of things. But when these uh, visions and these things that she was hearing got darker and darker and darker, I had to uh, get her out of the house to a hospital and get her tested. This was not an easy task. And I was able to bring her to the senior psych ward where she was diagnosed as schizophrenic. And with the minimal amount of meds, the voices disappeared and her last chapter in her life was actually one in which she was very much at peace and didn't hear the voices. And, and uh, we had wonderful times uh, uh, at home. Uh, my husband, Jack, was married to a woman uh, for 19 years. He had four kids from a previous sexuality. And they and his ex-wife and me and my mom became one big, unlikely family. We celebrated holidays together. Even now that my mom's gone, we still have a, a great rapport. Um, and I was just really lucky because when I took this this, uh, when I took my mom in and took on this project of both the mother and the house, I am not equipped to fix houses. <laughs> Dan, in that you are very much like my husband. There is not, I mean, flushing the toilet is the extent of his ability to do mechanical things. And you actually had a toilet explosion yeah. at your yeah. house with, with your mother. I, I just, so people don't think this is, this is also a hilarious book. You're a beautiful, poignant and hilarious writer because you went, and, and I remember when you were making this life-changing decision for both y'all, you felt uh, insecure, ill-equipped, and indeed, in the first couple of weeks, because of uh, you later learned malmedication or the wrong medicines or too much medicines, it's a very hard thing to treat, particularly when you don't know what it is. You had two face smashing incidents within two weeks of living with your mother. I, it, it's, I, the reason I'm bringing this up is because in this era of uh, we're always clamoring for our rights. It, we rarely talk about responsibilities, which are, are must be concomitant with rights. And the responsibility you took to care physically, emotionally, mentally for your mother and yourself is as parties you had, the masks she wore, your Halloween bashes, your Christmas bashes. Pick any holiday and give us a typical example of life at the Matthew's, well, Matthew's Jack home. Well, um, you know, when we we're Halloween is a block party at our house. It started uh, right when we moved to the house and within the first 10 years, it became really a, a mammoth block party. And for my mom's last Halloween, she wanted to pay tribute to Amy Winehouse because she loved her. Uh, Amy had recently died. She'd OD'd. So my mom, uh, who was 82 years old, dressed as Amy Winehouse, complete with the black beehive, 
white Coke residue around her nostrils and lugging a bottle of Jim Bean. And <laughs> she really did. And it was a big deal because I was born just before Halloween. And so I was born just after midnight. And the doctor, and my mom would always told me, always tell me that the doctor came in on a Saturday night just before Halloween to deliver me back in the 60s directly from a Halloween party. So he was arrested. I was delivered by Count Dracula. I was a big baby, so I made a big bloody entrance just after midnight. And so I've always loved big and big big entrances and uh, uh, splashy uh, uh, arrivals and, and Halloween. Uh, and so my mom kind of celebrated that with me all through our lives. And, and uh, we uh, uh, this particular party happened right after a hurricane had, had devastated our area here in Virginia. And our whole, everyone up and down our block, nobody wanted to miss our Halloween party. So it was an all hands on deck, people chainsawing tree limbs that had fallen down, preparing the deck. And um, I will say, this is a small American community. We're a Navy-based town. We live around the corner from the Portsmouth Naval Hospital. We include in our circle of friends, freshly discharged PTSD victims, tattoo artists, strippers, you, you name it, everybody from all political stripes, uh, uh, from all uh, every color of the rainbow. And that's the kind of people you'll find at our house. And they really, these people in the neighborhood were such great characters, but they were also such great people. They helped me and my mom get through some of these rough times that you have. And uh, I, I had no idea when I was taking her in that a whole village would rally around to help us out, to help us get through our crises. And it was a wonderful, wonderful thing. And that's what this book is about as much as it is it about schizophrenia. It's about how people rally together to help, um, you know, uh, to help people are, that are in need. And I just don't mean just financial need. I need, I mean, like taking her to the doctors when I'm traveling with work. Or just being with her. Uh, it might be a small town, but you have a big heart and it's manifested in your vast array of friends who not only did help with, with the house, but stayed with your mother, cared for your mother, genuinely loved your mother. Your friends from college remained her friends, even in your absence, which is a testament to both of you. And I, I, I want to make sure everyone understands there's so many beautiful stories, mother-son stories, parental stories, friend stories. It does take a village. And I found myself thinking about, as you mentioned in the book when you had her in the senior psych ward what do people do who don't have families who don't have a circle of friends i'm not making any i don't know what the answer to that is but it's a blessing that she had you and in the in the end i think you would say or at least i i'm going to say i found it a, a blessing to you your husband jack is a set designer, choreographer, very creative, lovely, lovely human being. And he had a great idea. Or he and his friends had a great idea to send her off in the in her what would have been her favorite way. Talk about the nutcracker. That, my mother was a big freak for the nutcracker. We went every year and she always aspired to be a dancer in life. It was one of those things that she just never got around to doing. But she loved the nutcracker when we went as kids every every December to see it. And so my friend uh, had the brilliant idea because she died just a few weeks before Christmas to take my mom's ashes and scatter them in the snow that falls at the end of act one at the Nutcracker at the Grand Ballet. And uh, he did it. We asked him to do it and he thought it was the most thrilling thing because she was such a big fan. 
And so her memorial, you know, she died so close to Christmas. I was, I was loath to call my brothers and get everybody to come to some sad memorial right around Christmas time. I said, you know what, let's send her off in a very theatrical way that she would have loved. And so um, a lot of her ashes went down in the snow that, that falls in the nutcracker at this grand theater. But then I kept uh, little bits of her ashes to send to my nieces and nephews. And I got all the, all of them little nutcracker Christmas tree ornaments <laughs> and sent them along with her ashes. And now they talk about that when showing her ashes off uh, all over the country. So my brothers were totally supportive of it. That the, the book it's, I don't know if you've seen the movie, meet me in St. Louis with Judy Garland, the 1940s. Yes, of course you love Judy Garland. <laughs> well, that book is set in four acts and it's four seasons all in the same house. And each season has a very distinct set of, of uh, dramas that that unfold and so i kind of pattern this book in that same format where it's four different seasons in our beautiful house uh and then after each season i skip ahead a year to the next season uh and it's but it's we live in such a beautiful part of virginia that we really get the full force of all seasons from blizzards to hurricanes and so it's a very kind of uh updated version of of uh of you know an american modern family situation it is a it is a, a modern family, and I, it's more than that. I, I know you're in the middle of your book tour, just kicking off, but I I want to say about this book to all our listeners: like crazy, life with my mother and her invisible friends, Dan Matthews, Simon and Schuster. It's not everything we. It's more than what we've talked about. It's a look at. It's so many facts in my seasoned age, Dan, that I had never known about music, about literature, about writers, about Americana, places and people all across America. You have such a lovely, creative, inventive, and not lucky life. You work hard. And I want everyone get this book, read this book, give it to your mother, give it to your brothers, give it to everybody. Before we sign off and you run off, because this is a political show. I, I also want to thank you, Mary, because when, when, when I first moved my mom in, and I didn't realize yet that she was schizophrenic, but that she was just really off kilter and I wasn't quite sure how to deal with it. I remember I sent you a note. You asked how she was doing. And I said, she's doing okay. I'm just not, I'm not sure I'm qualified for this. And you replied, uh, Dan, you're the only person qualified for this. And that really resonated with me and it really, it really bolstered me up. So I want to thank you for that. And I hope that that's the kind of uh, advice that anybody who reads this book might feel like is we all have it in within us to to take care of our own. Um, it just might be a difficult decision, but when the chips are down, we do have the know-how. Um, we just figure it out. <laughs> and you know what that was, why I gave you that advice and what I hope people can take this time to reflect on is becoming a new parent because in essence you became her parent and the reason i said that is because james and i had our kids at my well, wife's 42 and 45 and i thought i was ill-equipped and i very much was ill-equipped but if love is your touchstone and you do things everything you do is out of love then you're infinitely equipped to deal with these situations so i i love 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 the book now, you referenced our relationship, which goes back um, pre-Dan and, and Jack invented vegan gumbo for you New, Orleans, New Orleanians, which has now become an institution in, in a Louis Armstrong Park in New Orleans. Don't miss a vegan gumbo thing. But how we got involved with each other professionally through uh, PETA activism, which people tend to think is a 
big political lefty thing, but it's really bipartisan, nonpartisan, everybody from Newt Gingrich to conservative sheriffs to your own right wing, not me, uh, were involved with PETA in um, monitoring their food supply, particularly uh, animals being abused. And if you don't want to think about what you're eating, you can think about the stress that hormones that you would be putting into your own body or children's body. We all get hormones and beef and all that, but the stress that would attend animals who are slaughtered in the way that PETA is helping them not have to go through for our sake and for their sake, of course, you keep winning in the courts. But what I want to talk about now, which how that works, your your work in uh, with ag gag bills across the nation fits into COVID. Since the onset of COVID, the, the incidence of in food supply, on-site inspections, reporting of, of food problems from E. coli, salmonella, any kind of foodborne illnesses has not only, it's not just precipitously dropped in, in some instances of reporting and citations gone from thousands a month to zero. So this is something people need to understand about the work that PETA does. As much as I love your, your creative chicken man and naked stunts, and I love all of the way in which you get attention to your issues, it's really important to all of us, particularly in this COVID time, to understand the work that you're doing. Can you explain that part of what PETA does to people? Well, the only reason that we're all on lockdown right now is because of the meat trade. And at this time it happens to have emanated from a live animal meat market in Wuhan, but uh, HIV came from eating monkeys in Africa. Uh, and the 1917-1918 flu pandemic, which people call the Spanish flu, but it really started in, in Kansas, at a chicken and pig farm. It just was written about in Spain the first time. That's why they called it the Spanish flu. But when we eat animals, there are a lot of diseases which are not harmful to the animals themselves, but when they cross over into people, they can be deadly. There's these, it's called a zoonotic disease. And in the wake of COVID, PETA did investigations in six countries showing these live animal meat markets where the blood of one species of wild animal that they're selling for some delicacy is intermingling with the, the blood of a fish or a chicken that is also being bought at the same market. Repeat has been involved in banning these live animal in uh, both California and New York, uh, as well as reminding people that this all started from the meat trade. Uh, and domestically, the issue is, is even kind of deeper. Um, just before COVID uh, hit, uh, the pig industry, the uh, Pork Producers Council, announced that they no longer allow government and health inspectors into the processing plants, into the slaughterhouses, to confirm cases of where there were salmonella outbreaks. There's also, they use so much drugs to keep animals in slaughterhouses alive because they're so sickly because of how they're kept and confined that they give them so much um, uh, antibiotics that those antibiotics get passed off to people and then when we get sick, the drugs that we take don't work because we've already uh, run up a resistance to them from the drugs we're getting to we eat. And there's uh, a lot of uh, 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 slaughterhouses that have had that particular problem that have been pinpointed, but they now refuse government inspectors because they don't want their brands of meat to be sullied by the, by the controversy. So Pete is working to expose this all the time. And um, a number of states tried to make it illegal 
for anybody to go into slaughterhouses and take footage uh, to get uh, uh, evidence of, of infections. And the uh, meat trade tried to fight that by making it illegal to take footage inside of a meat plant, inside of a slaughterhouse without permission from the owner. And we worked very hard to get these laws, they were called the ag-gag laws, uh, overturned. And Mary, you were really instrumental in getting a few of these laws overturned, particularly in Tennessee and Indiana. Uh, just last month, we, we had a great victory in North Carolina where we were able to have the law overturned as unconstitutional. So even if you're not a vegetarian or a vegan, I know people want their, uh, the meat they eat to be inspected, at least to some extent. And that is happening very, very little right now because of COVID. Uh, and it's something we all need to be very, very worried about. So right, left, in between, this is not political. This is a health issue. And the book is just what we need to read during our COVID, which is has the silver lining of giving us time to reflect like crazy. Life with my mother and her invisible friends. Dan Matthews, Simon and Schuster. Dan, I read the title to my daughters. They said, sounds like somebody we know. I wish you such success and we're gonna have parties for you in all of our homes that we can't sell because of COVID. I love you, baby. Love you too, don't threaten me with the party. Boy, that was, that was really uh, a, a, a welcome uh, addition to this show, James. And Dan is doing a virtual book event with Alec Baldwin tonight, August 13th, 7.30 live. It'll be streamed live at Newsday.com. James, we, before we go, we have to talk about the VP pick, Kamala Harris. Uh, I, think, I think you will concur. This has been my preference all, all along. I've written about that, said it. I don't think... Um, I must say the rollout was even better than I anticipated uh, in the sense that I think she's she's certainly a safe pick. She's a predictable pick in that way. But I think the excitement uh, has been clear from the reaction of people. First, I look at, you know, I've gotten several emails from uh, Asian Americans who say this is terrific because her mother is from Asia. Uh, she is somebody that I think the left really is not all that comfortable with but cannot criticize. And I saw where Ari Fleischer said, you know, she really isn't going to appeal to African-Americans. Asking Ari Fleischer about what appeals to African-Americans is like asking Mike Pence about feminism. Uh, so I, I, think that, uh, I think the Biden-Harris ticket is a good one. Yeah. I mean, look, I, uh, you know, this much time the day after, it certainly couldn't get involved better, but I would remind everybody generally when you have this kind of a rollout and this kind of almost unanimous enthusiasm, you know, they're going to be, stuff is going to happen. Just prepare for it. This will be, this is the high watermark. Yes. If you will. And, uh, and, and they will play the race card against you. There's no, no question. Every, every, everything. And they'll dig up something and they'll find somebody and they'll get a, some, I mean, you just know all this is coming. And, I don't know how much more they can go because if Biden could get rid of the God, the Bible, or speak Chinese. What's next? A traitor? Whoa, 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 whoa. I mean, Trump has already accused uh, Obama of committing treason, so sure, right. that's next. Yeah. I mean, you know, and yeah, he'll have yeah. to up that. Yeah, uh, we got to figure way. We can't, we, we got to see that and raise it. So I don't know where we're going to go. Yeah. Well, you know, of course you're right, and there will be all kinds of uh, attacks on her. But, but I want to go back to a point I made earlier. I, I, I think Biden uh, is going to win this thing without 
flack from the left, but he's going to get flack from the left, which will be an annoyance both now and in governing. And they're going to push him, and they're going to and and I think I really don't believe that most of the Bernie crowd is very happy with Kamala Harris, but they can't criticize her, and they can't criticize him. And I think to some extent it gives him a little bit uh, more leeway. And and that's again on the margins, it doesn't make a whole lot of difference, but a little bit. And I think she can comfortably campaign. We saw Ben Wickler said she could go to rural Wisconsin. She can go to rural Wisconsin. She can go about anywhere. And my final point is I would guess that candidates like Doug Jones in Alabama and uh, Cal Cunningham in North Carolina uh, are pleased with this choice. I, I would think so. You know, again, I caution you, this is probably the best day. And generally, it, it doesn't matter. But maybe this time, it, it, it certainly seems to have the potential to help and not more potential for upside than downside. But it's the most cautious thing I could say right now. I actually probably feel a bit more optimistic than that. But I think anybody that's seen as many cycles as we have would say it's, you know, the overwhelming chance is it doesn't, it doesn't matter very much, but a little bit better chance it matters on the upside than the downside. I think I'd say that would be the position I would take right now. I'm, by the way, I'll tell you about something else. I'm intrigued by, and you should do it in one of your columns closer to election day, is pick out one county in every important state that we could watch on election night. I, you know, I, I just think it's a good little, it's a good little trick. And, it, and it's probably going to be, we'll be pretty close to right in a lot of these states. Well, he gave us two in Wisconsin, and we've already talked earlier about Gwinnett uh, in Georgia, and there's some to watch. I would watch. Yeah, I would watch Erie in Pennsylvania. I think uh, uh, I think some of those northeast counties are also worth watching. But Erie is uh, Erie goes with a winner. Erie went with Trump last time after going for Obama twice. Uh, I think that's an interesting one. But you're right. We ought to just compile those between just, now. Just and so November. you know, in 1986, Erie was the bell. All right, 30, 34 years later. <laughs> Pennsylvania, here is still yeah. the bell. That's right. That's <laughs> then, right. You know, some things, you know, the, the, the state is saying some things change. Uh, I think that Pennsylvania is, is a place that has been, many state has probably been as static as anyone over there. Well, wait, 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 let me disagree with you. I think you're right about Erie totally. I think you're totally right about Erie. But, you know, Westmoreland and Washington in 86 were Democrat, and Montgomery and Delaware in the East were Republican. So that's, right. that shifted no, enormously. That, shift, uh, that shifted a lot. The, yeah. The point is, Erie stayed, you know, yeah, the, the red and the blue all shifted, and, it's, and Erie still sounds there. Stayed the same. There's a swing of swings. It's, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, the demographic split and everything else is split, and the suburban, you know, Westmoreland and Chester County flip places and Beaver County and Montgomery County have flip places and you name it, of course. But it just is uh it is odd that, that one county in the, maybe the remote in the extreme northeast corner of the state still is swing. <laughs> yeah. Well I talked to Tom Ridge, the reformer Republican governor, was in the Bush cabinet, uh, no admirer of Trump, and he's pretty confident that Biden's gonna carry Erie County. So we'll, um, you know, if he does, I, first of all, I think Biden's going to carry Pennsylvania. Uh, and if he carries Erie County, he surely is going to carry Pennsylvania. Um, but anyway, we, I want to, before we go, I'd like to just come back just for a minute. You may have a couple other things too, to that Ron Johnson and that just security piece. People have to read it 
because I don't think that I think Ron Johnson is a unwitting uh, dupe of Russian disinformation. That's a serious charge. But the FBI has told him that the former chairman uh, and the current chairman of the uh, Senate Intelligence Committee has told him that that he is using a guy named uh, Ukrainian named Teloshenko, who they have said uh, is basically a, a Russian plant. And that's what he's doing now in order to try to tar Joe Biden. And uh, it was just, he was, uh, just one more thing I would say about it. And you ought to read the just security piece. You know, in that impeachment testimony in the House, Fiona Hill, who was the Russian expert in the Trump White House, this is not some kind of crazy lefty, said that the what what Johnson is 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 peddling now, she called a fictional narrative that is being perpetrated and propagated by the Russian security services. I just think that that ought to be more front and center for Ron Johnson and Chuck Grassley, who really are playing a dangerous uh, and a bad game. I, I agree. I, I, sometimes I think maybe that guy's problem is just stupid. You know, more than evil or anything else, he might he might just be flat out stupid. Let's don't discount that. Or manipulated by staff. Yeah, well, that's, that's stupid. Yeah, it yeah, is. Stupid it people is. People get manipulated by staff, and they get manipulated by right. donors. They get manipulated by the people in the caucus. Yeah, yeah. I th- but I think it. I don't know this, and maybe we'll get Ben back on a show and ask him his opinion. But I, I think the dominant trait of this guy is stupidity. We got to give a shout out to the people of Northwest Georgia for nominating a Kuanon, <laughs> but by by big vote. <laughs> she said that the uh, 2018 election was about an Islamic invasion of America. Right. She got like 58 uh, or 59 percent. Yeah, Ms. Green. Uh, yeah. She is Marjorie, uh, I think. Yeah, she called uh, George Soros a Nazi. Uh, she says, she said, blacks are slaves to the Democrats. I mean, you couldn't ask for a more offensive person and we'll see what the Republican party does or, or does not do about her. We will. Okay. That was uh, a terrific show. It was a good uh, show. It was uh, an uh, interesting show. We should try to do, you know, this kind of thing kind of once a month. It's a little different and, uh, you know, not our listeners, uh, subscribers, you know, find us pretty predictable, not overly predictable. Yeah, no, uh, I think so. Well, we got uh, we got an interesting week ahead. We'll be back with you uh, when we're in the middle of a virtual convention, whatever a virtual convention means. Uh, and James, I want you to be safe, as always, this week. And thank all of you for listening to 2020 Politics War Room. Follow the show on Twitter at Politics War Room. Email us, Politics War Room at gmail.com. That's politicswarroom at gmail.com. Thanks for subscribing. Please rate the show, hopefully with a five-star review. We'll be back next week with another interesting show. You never know who's going to show up, but you can count on us to do our best to inform and entertain you. Stay safe and healthy. Keep social distancing. Uh, See you next week.